Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. This morning, I want us to kind of step into that, that narrative, uh, not waiting until Monday, Thursday. I, I want us to take today and look at a, an account from one of the gospel writers uh, from the crucifixion. It's the gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. It's Luke chapter 23. Uh, I actually put the whole passage of scripture that we're going to look at today uh, on your worksheet so you can go ahead and, and get those out if you would. Now, we're in a series called All In. And last week, uh, Dr. Jeremy came and he shared with us that Jesus is all in for all people from all places. No matter where you're at on the face of this earth, no matter what your nationality or people group, Jesus is all in for you. This morning, I want us to look at how Jesus is all in for all people from all places in all conditions. You know, the human condition can be one of great brokenness. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus is all in for all people from all places in every single condition. In Luke chapter 23, what we're going to read chronologically in the crucifixion story, I believe happens right at noon. I think the scripture that we read, uh, Luke chapter 23, bears that out. But I think what we're, the, the, the moment that we're going to look at happened right about noon. Um, I personally believe that this was kind of the halfway point. Uh, historians who piece together the gospel narratives tell us that Jesus was probably put on the cross uh, at about 9 a.m. and breathed his last breath saying himself, it is finished, uh, into, my, into your hands I commend my spirit, right about 3 p.m. So from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So there's this window of six hours that the crucifixion took place. And uh, it, what we're going to read is about the midway point. Happens about the midway point. So if you have your worksheet with you or your Bibles open, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV this morning. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, he's the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourselves. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, being Jesus, said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of our Lord. 
this narrative, this account, this story is one of the greatest displays of the glory of God, of the grace of God, and of the gospel in such a short, concise uh, time span. This, this man, this repentant thief that we see actually comes to Christ and begins to bear witness to the glory of God to his friend who's hanging on the cross just kind of around the corner from Jesus. It's this incredible story. Now, one of the things that is, is just reality for all human beings, it's a common human experience is that we all face death. We all face death. We're all going to have that experience unless the Lord returns before we, before we die. But here's, here's a reality that I've observed. Not all people die the same way. And I don't mean necessarily the circumstance. I'm talking about the way they experience it. Some people die peacefully. Some people die restlessly. Some are very confident and comfortable. And some, some are fearful and afraid. Some, some die joyfully. Some die angrily. People die differently in part, I believe, because they live differently. Their life experience is so much different. And I'm absolutely convinced that how you live in so many ways will determine how you experience death. In the 1700s, one of the most outspoken critics of the gospel and of uh, Christ followers of the church was a guy by the name of Voltaire. He was a French writer and poet and self-proclaimed atheist. He always was taking shots at Christ and at the church and, and the followers of Jesus. Now, he was a very persuasive speaker. He was also somewhat arrogant. But on his deathbed, one of the last words that he repeated over and over again was he said this, I am abandoned by God and by man. I shall go to hell. Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. The nurse that attended him in his latter days stated that he repeated that over and over and over. And she went on to say that she would never again serve someone who was an unbeliever in Europe. She said she, you could pay her all the money in Europe and she would not again attend to a dying person, a dying European who was an unbeliever. Some of you are familiar with Gandhi. Gandhi was one of the great unifiers uh, fighting for the independence of India against Great Britain rule. He was pluralistic in his worldview. Basically what he said was all paths lead to God. But that's basically what, what, what he said. But at his death he had a very kind of different picture. His last words were these. All about me is darkness and I am praying for light. Those were some of Gandhi's last words. Now, that's very different from the death experiences of men like Martin Luther who, as he was dying, said this, God is the God from whom comes salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. Whole different kind of language and thought pattern. Or John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, that when he died, his last words were, live in Christ, die in Christ, and you need not fear in the flesh the death that comes upon you. Just completely different ways of facing this thing called death. Now, in the gospel account that we read a moment ago, there is this kind of deathbed conversation that's going on that, again, becomes a 
just incredible, poignant moment of the gospel being put on display and actually being shared. You know, before that man who shares the gospel in our story today became this one who understood the gospel, he was, before that moment, he was a condemned convict. He was a hardened criminal. Uh, that's what scripture teaches us. The Bible tells us that there are two men, two criminals. Both of them are hopeless and heartless and Christless. But then one of them, Jesus promises to go to heaven. He promises that he'll be with him. How many of you have ever read anything by uh, an author named Max Lucado? Anybody ever read anything? If you've never have, incredible, incredible author. Uh, one of the books that I would commend to you that he's written is called In the Grip of Grace. Great, 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 great read. In the fourth chapter of his book, Locato recounts an experience. What, what he describes as probably the greatest struggle he ever had of coming to grips with the grace of God. And it's centered around the baptism of Jeffrey Dahmer. Anybody remember Jeffrey Dahmer? Horrible serial killer. Uh, Wisconsin, he, they estimated that he killed up to 17 people. They, many believe it was much more than that. Um, he would murder, he would rape, he would dismember, and he even, I know it's gross, but uh, he even ate uh, some of his victims. Um, he was what, kind of what you think is the bottom rung of humanity. You know, he just, that's, his life spiraled down to that. But while this man was in prison, he made a profession of Christ. And there was a local pastor, his name's Roy Ratcliffe. He got a call. He would do this often for the prison. He got a call from the prison saying a prisoner was asking for baptism. Roy had no idea who he was going to baptize. None. But he shows up at this prison and he meets Jeffrey Dahmer. And he talks to him and he hears this man's story of coming to faith in Christ and he decides to baptize him. And then Pastor Ratcliffe spends the next weeks, months actually, every week, spending one hour a week with this man talking to him and discipling him. And Ratcliffe came to the clear understanding that Jeffrey Dahmer would be in in heaven eternally and that he'd seen there one day. Max Lucado said, I struggle with that. I struggle that Jesus, I know he's a savior, but that can he save somebody that's that kind of vicious criminal? And then he concludes that chapter by saying, I've come to rest in the truth that forgiveness for criminals like Jeffrey Dahmer is the very heart of the gospel. The gospel is all about that kind of forgiveness. Folks, here's the deal. Jesus is all in for condemned convicts. He is all in. And there are a lot of reasons why followers of Jesus need to, we need to wrap our minds around this and pay it deep attention. One of the reasons is because of the condition of our own country. Currently, in the United States, we have the second highest rate of incarceration in the world. Only Russia is higher on that list than us. Only Russia. The current prison population in our, in our country is about two and a half million people. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. And we have to have a gospel approach to that. 
We have to think about the gospel as we approach the prisoner. Jesus has called us to this kind of thinking. It's a very poignant issue in our culture and society. And in Luke 23, Jesus points the way for us to think about every person that's currently incarcerated. In, in our story, in this account that we look at in Luke chapter 23, we have a state-sanctioned execution in place. This is what's going on. And this person turns his life over to Christ in the middle of that. And there are a couple of things that this account, I think, teaches us about the relationship that Jesus had with convicts and criminals. The first one is Jesus' relationship, which is kind of the idea of criminals. That he was around criminals. And the other is this intimate relationship that he ends up having with this one criminal. If you look back at verse 32, it says this. Two others were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and who? The criminals. Now that word used there for criminals is the word karkugas. Karkugas. And, and it literally means evil working men. People who are working evil. Now, that, we're not told by Luke exactly what they did. We're not given their names. Uh, we're just kind of given this a generic term, criminals. But this is why it's important when you're reading a narrative to look at what the other gospel writers wrote about the same thing. Because Matthew and Mark tell us the specific crimes that they did. It's important to grab hold of that because it helps you understand the gravity of this. In Matthew chapter 27 and in Mark chapter 15, both those gospels tell us that these were thieves or robbers. These are the words that they, they get translated as. It actually means something a little more than that. It means the kind of thief or robber that's not a petty thief, but the kind of robber that breaks in and assaults people. They don't just take your stuff. They take life from you. So these were hardened criminals. They wouldn't just steal. They would take pleasure in harming their victims. Beating them. Maybe even killing them. And here's something else that historians tell us that just fascinates me. Very possibly, those two criminals being crucified with Jesus were part of a gang that Barabbas led. You know who Barabbas is? He's the one who Jesus took the place on his cross. That middle cross was intended for Barabbas. They believe he was kind of the leader of this band of marauders, if you would, who were pillaging people's homes, killing people, causing all kinds of harm. And Jesus dies in his place because he was released. Something else that historians tell us is most likely both of these men were Jewish. They had Jewish origin. One, because we're in a city of the Jews, Jerusalem. We're in the capital city. The other has to do with the conversation, the language that gets used by the repentant criminal. You'll see that in a little bit. But I want us to try to step into this story. If, if you're going to understand the beauty and glory of one of the most horrible acts that ever took place on the face of the earth, the crucifixion, you've got to really step into the story. And I want us to see this. See, Jesus is here dying between two criminals. And that is not by accident. It's not incidental. It is very, very intentional. 700 years... Before this crucifixion, the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. That at, at his death, the, 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 the promised one, the Messiah, would be numbered among transgressors. In other words, it's always been the plan of God that when Jesus died, he would die among criminals. That's always been part of, of God's plan. Now, why do you suppose that is? 
I think it's because God wanted us to know that Jesus related and loved and was known as the friend of sinners. Jesus was, a, there was a title that was given to him by Pharisees. They thought they were mocking him with this title, the friend of sinners. Jesus knew about that title and he wore it. He talked about it himself uh, in Matthew chapter 11. He knew that he was known as the friend of sinners. How might our world be different today if Jesus' church was known as people who were friends to sinners? I, I fear sometimes that too often we think the church is a showcase for saints. But Jesus associated even in his death because of how divinely humble he was. We just see this divine humility and it, it shows us something I think. The other thing this narrative shows us I think is it, it, it shows us something about human opportunity. It, it, it points something out. Here are two different men dying. They, they had the same equal opportunity. They, they were probably just as close proximally to Jesus. They had both committed the same crime most likely. They were dying the same death. Both of them were reviling Jesus, mocking Jesus. Now, somebody saying, no, it, it, he, they did. I want us to see that in just a minute. But both of them were going through all that. One dies saved. The other dies separated from God for eternity. And they both had the same opportunity but different outcomes. You know why? See, somehow we think that just rubbing up against Jesus and things of Jesus somehow redeems us. It, it doesn't. Just because you show up, just because you read, just because you may study, that has nothing to do with what Jesus said is the pathway to him. It doesn't mean those things can save you. So Jesus is here in the midst of criminals. And in verse 39, it tells us that one of the criminals, one of these two criminals who hanged there railed against him, just hollered at Jesus, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him and, and said to him, do you not fear God? Luke tells us about one criminal hurling insults at Jesus. And sometimes if all you read was that gospel, you might think that the other one never did that. That wouldn't be true. If you go and you look both in, in Matthew and Mark, both criminals reviled Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27 it says, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Here's what happened. When the crucifixion started, everybody was hurling insults at Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the soldiers, and both thieves were reviling Jesus. Both of them were casting insults at Jesus and it's important that you know that so that you understand the context of what happens. Everybody was just just hollering at Jesus. And this is why you got to step into the story. Everybody's pushing this forward. And suddenly, one of these two dying criminals going through excruciating pain you know, it's just kind of funny to me too. Why would you, hanging on a cross, going through the amount of pain that you're going through, use the breath that you had to cast insults at another guy that's dying? 
I mean, here's what I want you to see by that moment. That these two guys, they get caught up in the power. I mean, folks, that day on Calvary, on that hill, there was incredible evil. Unbelievable evil was there. But you also are going to see incredible grace overcomes that. Just incredible grace overcomes that. There's, he's caught up in this moment, but then suddenly one of the criminals, something changes for. It, he, it, everything changes for him in a moment. Now, I, it doesn't tell us this, but I just imagine that whatever began happening in him internally, that first he grew quiet. Whereas he had been casting insults, I believe he stopped. I believe he started fixating on Jesus and suddenly... His mind has a clarity that it's never had before. And he starts to see the reality of what is actually going on. And this guy has a change of heart. There's this massive transformation. And he turns out 180 degrees. And the mocking from him stops. And instead, he turns and rebukes the other criminal. And he reaches out to Jesus relationally. And he says, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I wish I could tell you I knew what happened. I, I don't know exactly what brought about this incredible change. Was, there, was it just one thing? Was it something? You know, Jesus had sayings from the cross. We see two of them in the passage that we read. There were seven total. But we see two here today. Was it when Jesus, while he was being crucified, hanging on the cross, in verse 34, we read it a moment ago, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Was, was that it? Was, did he think, if he could forgive all of them, all of this, Maybe could he forgive me? I, I don't know. Maybe that was the thought. Maybe, maybe, maybe he saw the inscription over Jesus' head. King of the Jews. And maybe he thought, well, if they're, if they're saying he's the king of something, he, he must, could he rule over me? Could my life be different if this king would rule over me and have reign over my life, even in this late hour? Or maybe, maybe, maybe he picked up on the jeering of the crowd. Maybe some of the things that he had even said himself. If you're the Christ, the Son of God, come down off that cross. If you're the Savior, the Messiah. You know what maybe he thought? Wonder if he is. Could he be the Messiah? Could he, could he save me? Could, could my life be changed? Whatever individual thing it was or corporative thing it was, there was this gospel moment, this moment when the glory of God broke through this man's heart and it caused him to stop dead in his tracks in his sin and become a preacher. He became a missionary in that moment on the cross and he began rebuking his friend. You know, now... Before you say, okay, Joe, that's just one place in the gospel. I'm not really sure that I'm buying in that Jesus saved that guy. That's just kind of too incredible. You know, there's another account in the book of Acts of a terrorist that Jesus saved. You know what his name was? 
His name was Saul. And he had left Jerusalem and he had in his hands orders to imprison and kill mass murder Christians. He had orders in his hands. And he's riding on his high horse and Jesus knocks him off. And in a moment, a moment, we see a turning in this man's heart because he encounters, he has a divine encounter with the holy glory of God, Jesus Christ. And he is changed. These things can happen. It can happen in a moment. Jesus can change a human heart. And we've got to be, we've got to understand this if we want to see the miraculous occurrence of God's grace. Again, we see Jesus in the company of, you know, these convicts. And I hope you hear the promise that he made to him. In verse 43, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. New Living says it this way, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, why do you think Jesus, remember, Jesus is on the cross. Just catching your breath is suffering. Why would you use extra words? Why, why wouldn't you just say, today you'll be with me in paradise? Why grab this other word, this truly word, or this phrase? Why, why use your, why waste words? I think it's because Jesus knew how unbelievable this was going to be even for the man. And Jesus was saying, you need to know this is the absolute truth that I'm about to tell you. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I want you to be assured because it's so hard to believe I know. Now, I, I challenge you to look for it. I, I haven't found it yet. And I want to know if I'm wrong here. But there is not a clearer, more explicit assurance of forgiveness in heaven given to anybody by Jesus than was given to this thief on the cross. It is one of the most clear expressions of forgiveness and the promise of heaven given to anybody in the gospel. It's to this man on the cross. And it's to somebody who from the outside looks like the most undeserving of all people. How could Jesus do that? How could he just promise heaven in an instant to a guy like that? Today, surely you will be with me in paradise. There are, there are Christians who believe that you have to do certain things to be saved. There, there are a group of Christians who believe you got to be baptized in order to be saved. I don't see anywhere in here Jesus saying to this guy next to him on the cross saying, dude, look, if you can figure out how to come down off that cross, run down to the Jordan, dunk yourself and get back up here, we'll fix things. Jesus does not say that. There's nothing that this guy does. There's no religious activity that he engages. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't do a good work. He just says, remember me. And Jesus says, truly. Truly. You know, and when you think about the conversation that he has with Jesus, you know, anytime you talk to God, we call that what? We call that prayer. That's called prayer. So here's this guy talking to the second member of the Trinity, talking to God on a cross, and you know what he says first? Jesus. What's his second two words? Remember me. It's a selfish prayer. I mean, it just, it's like, it's kind of like a five-year-old. Look at me. Hey, I'm over here. You know? It's a very selfish prayer. It's not like, you know, praying for the whole world's salvation. He said, Jesus, remember, remember me. 
remember me. And Jesus, and Jesus does. See, here's the truth. Jesus doesn't need you and I to do anything to save us. But he chooses that we respond to him in faith. Paul writing to Titus says this, he saved us not because of works we've done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's how we're saved. And then look at, look at how this condemned convict, I mean this, this just blows me away. Where Jesus tells him he's going to be with him. What's the word Jesus uses for heaven here? Paradise. That is a very, very interesting word. It is a word that is usually used by uh, the Greeks to describe a Persian king. Because Persian kings were known to have walled gardens. These walled gardens. And this is the word that Jesus uses here on the cross. It's this idea of, of a walled garden. Very, very interesting. Um, so that you understand, this isn't the only place that this word paradise is used of heaven. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12... Paul also uses this when he talks about himself being caught up to heaven. He says that in verse 2. And in verse 4 he calls it paradise. I was caught up in the paradise. He uses those words interchangeably. So when Jesus is using this word here, he's talking about this idea of heaven being a garden. And Persian kings, one of the ways if they wanted to bestow honor on somebody is they would make them a companion of the garden. And what that means is you would be one of very few people who would be invited into fellowship with the king in his place of solace. In his walled-in garden. And this is what Jesus says to this thief on the cross. He doesn't say, okay, here's the deal, dude. When we get up into heaven, I'm going to go sit on my throne. I'm going to hang out with my dad. And we're going to move you outside the city because, man, you're, you're a real sinner. And we're going to leave you out there for a couple thousand years. I'll come check on you. And once we get enough sin washed off of you, then maybe we'll let you move right up next to the gate. Okay? He doesn't say anything like that. What does he say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is just very saying clearly... When we leave this world, if you're in him, you are going to be with him in an unbelievable place. You will be with me. And I love that Jesus said today, see Jesus knew that he was about to die. Jesus knew that man was about to die. And he, he's giving him heaven. He's giving him intimate relationship for all eternity, walking with Jesus in the garden of heaven. Do you know who hates that this is in the Bible? It's not criminals. They love it. It's not irreligious people. You know who hates that that's in the Bible? Religious people. People who think that you've got to work your way into heaven. People who miss the gospel because of its simple beauty. It just irks religious, self-righteous, works-based people. That this guy is in heaven. How many of you have ever heard of the Barna Research Group? 
the Barna Research Group. They do a lot of, a lot of work, um, especially understanding what people in our country think about religion. Back in 2015, this was the last time that I read results, they, they interviewed uh, American, uh, Americans and they asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? I want you to listen to some of the results. 10% of Americans think it means to be a good person. 11% think it means to go to church and be religious. 14% think it means to love and help others. Now, just a quick question. From what we know about that thief on the cross, did he fit any of those descriptions? He didn't fit a single stinking one of those. He didn't do any of those things. And Jesus, in compassion, looks at him and says, I'll see you soon. We'll, we'll hang out soon in paradise. Now, as unbelievable as that is, there, there's, there's more here. And I want to unpack this real quickly, kind of as we head down the path of closing out, because this condemned convict puts the gospel on display in a beautiful way. He puts the gospel on display as well as, well as the Apostle Paul does. I mean, he just, he lays this out. And we can learn something, one, about the gospel, and two, about how to share the gospel, even in a hostile environment, because this, this man hanging on a cross was in a very hostile environment. But I want you to see what he does. The first thing that he does that we can learn from this, this condemned convict is he begins with God. I, any, any communication of the gospel needs to begin with God. He starts this conversation this way. And if we're going to respond to the world with the hope of the gospel, we got to start with God. In verse 40, it tells us that he rebuked the other thief who was hurling, still hurling insults, saying to him, Do you not fear God? It's a great gospel question. Do, do you not know who God is? Are you unaware that there is a God? God's Word tells us something about this phrase, Do you not fear God? Psalms 111 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice this fear of the Lord have good understanding. You understand life. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the foundation for knowing wisdom. See, the fear of God, this, this reverence, this understanding of who God is, that he's all-powerful and he's all-righteous and he's perfectly holy and he's totally different from us. This condemned convict got that. He got a glimpse of the beauty and glory of God by watching Jesus. He saw it. And he's overwhelmed by this reality now. So much so that his whole heart is changed. And his eternal destiny is changed. And now he's concerned about his friend. He said, dude, don't you, don't you know who God is? Or do, do you understand? Who, don't you fear God, man? He's just awed by this. Second thing that this condemned convict teaches us is this. Is that we have to come to God when we come face to face with him. And we've got to admit our guilt. We've got to admit our guilt. Verse 40 says this. Do you not fear God? Don't you, don't you see? Can you imagine being that other criminal? I mean, if by chance they actually were in cahoots. They were part of a gang. Can you imagine that other criminal saying... Dude, who do you think you are? Man, do you know why you're hanging on the cross too? You did the same stuff I did. And now you're trying to correct me? What's up with that? You ever had anybody do that to you? You know, you try to tell them about the gospel and they say, who are you to tell me the gospel, man? Clean up your own act. I, I mean, you can just kind of see this guy saying, dude, what, uh, have you had a mental breakdown, man? 
What, what has happened to you? This guy says, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and then he, he puts himself in. And we, he includes himself, and we, indeed justly, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. We're getting what we deserve. But this man's done nothing. He's done nothing wrong. This guy goes from blaspheming God, stopping, getting crystal clarity on what's really going on here. And now he has this unbelievable awe, reverent fear of the God of all of creation. And it overwhelms him so much that this other guy who's still rebuking Jesus, I mean still hollering at Jesus, he rebukes him. I mean he's so overcome by the glory of God that he cannot help but speak of Jesus. And who he is and the beauty of, of who he is. And he says, look, we've broken human law, man. We deserve what we're getting. But aren't you concerned about what's going to happen next? Aren't you concerned about what we're going to have to face next? We're going to have to face God. We've we got to deal with this God thing. And he seems to be genuinely concerned about his friend's eternity. By the way, the first step in true conversion is always a reverent fear of God. It's one of the ways that you can know if somebody has truly come to saving faith is they are aware of the awe of God. It's just, it, something's different. See, when you share the gospel with somebody, it needs to include, yes, Jesus is all in for you. No matter who you are, what you've done, how long you did it, who you did it with. Jesus is all in for you. Yes, he's all in for all people in all places at all times. Yes, but... But, and this is Jesus' words, unless you repent, you will in no way see the kingdom. You will likewise perish. Unless you repent. Luke records that in Luke 13. That's Jesus. Jesus also recorded by the gospel writer Matthew says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but also those who can cure the soul. Rather fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And see this condemned convict... In his experience with God, he's getting that. And he acknowledges his own sin. He acknowledges his guilt. But he also acknowledges that this man Jesus has done nothing wrong. He rebukes that other convict and he says he's done nothing wrong. Which leads us to the third thing. This condemned convict can teach us that you must have to put your total trust. You must rely completely on Jesus. If you're going to communicate the gospel to somebody, you've got to share this. You've got to share that they have to totally trust Jesus and his words. You've got to trust it. This guy is giving himself over to Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's addressing Jesus personally and reverently and intimately. Some translations add the word Lord. That he said, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your... He doesn't go, hey dude, on the middle cross. He doesn't say that. He, I mean, he, he becomes very reverent. He gets respectful. He also recognizes Jesus as what? King. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If there's a kingdom, there's a king. See, this guy knew that Jesus was about to die. And he knew that he was about to, He knew that nobody escapes Roman crucifixion. Because if by some miracle Jesus did come down off the cross, there were armed guards there ready to kill him. They would have killed him right then. But he recognized that something else was going on. And this is one of the reasons that people believe, historians believe this guy was Jewish. Is because he had an understanding that there was life after this life. 
He was looking forward to something else and he wanted it to be different. And so he looks at Jesus and realizes he is the king of hereafter. He is the king of eternal life. And so he says to his friend, we deserve this man. We, we deserve everything we're getting. But he is sinless. He has done nothing wrong. You know, there are people who proclaim to be Christians who, 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 who actually believe that Jesus was not sinless. They believe that somewhere in his life, maybe as a kid, he sinned. This thief on the cross has a better theology of Jesus than some who, who practice faith. I mean, he, he, was, he was clear. This guy has done nothing wrong. Fourth thing that this condemned convict teaches us about the gospel is that we got to make it personal. He, he personally reached out to Jesus. He called Jesus by his personal name. He responded to the, the beauty and the awe and the glory of Jesus. And he came into saving relationship with Jesus. And please notice what took place. This will always, if you turn to Christ, it will always involve an act of your will. Yes, there will be thoughts. It will be mental, probably emotional. But your will has to be engaged. This guy's will got so engaged in following Jesus now that he now becomes an evangelist. He just engages his friend. His will has been changed. He is pointing himself to the life in Christ. And it begins to change what he's doing, how he's experiencing life. This condemned convict, it was personal for he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was personal. In John chapter 1, the scriptures tell us, but to all who believed him and accepted him, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. This guy believed and accepted it, and he did it personally. And this is the last lesson I think we get from him, is he did it publicly. All of this took place publicly. This was all on display. People heard it. If Jesus could hear him and he could hear Jesus, the other thief could hear it. The Roman guards could hear it. The people out there could hear all of this going on. This was a public decision under the most excruciating of circumstances. This guy turns and, and follows Christ. He says, remember me. Now one of the reasons this is so, so significant is because of all the mocking that was going on. He just, he comes, he just slams the brakes on. It would have been easier for him to just kind of continue to follow the crowd. But he made it known publicly that he was following Jesus now. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. See, sometimes people will say, well, if I give my life to Jesus, what are my friends going to say? You know, what will my friends think? Folks, friends, never let friends go to hell. They don't. Friends would never do that. True friends. And, and this guy begins being captured by this, so he makes it public. That, that happened that day. Now, here's the deal. Every day, every day all over the world, people are given this, they're confronted with the same thing. They're given the same choices to be for Christ or against Christ. Both those thieves had the same opportunity. The crowd had the same opportunity. The Roman soldiers had the same opportunity. Many of them died lost, but this one thief died saved. 
Now, I don't know all of you here in this room today real well. Some of you I know very well. I don't know if all of you have personally and publicly trusted Christ by admitting before a holy God that you were guilty of sin and you know that it separates you from him and that for all eternity you'll be separated. But here's an opportunity today for you to do that. Just like this thief on the cross, it's an opportunity for you to let Christ do a new work in your heart. But most of us in this room are followers of Jesus. And here's one of the things that you and I have to be aware of. Is that this world, as broken as it is, has the capacity to shape our hearts for evil. Not on us, but to shape us and cause us to be given over to evil. So here's, I want to ask you a couple questions, kind of as we're closing. Who currently, in your mind, have you condemned to an eternity separated from God? Who have you just kind of condemned and convicted? Are terrorists? Murderers? Pedophiles? Muslims? Hindus? Atheists? Republicans or Democrats? Who have you just condemned? Because no one is beyond salvation. No one is. The Apostle Paul was a terrorist. The Apostle Peter was a traitor. The Apostle Thomas was a doubter. Three weeks ago we saw that the Apostle John was a hater and a racist. And Jesus saved them all. Every last one of them. See, the moment you and I begin to entertain a thought that someone is beyond the power of the gospel, that somebody is beyond the grace of God, that somebody is beyond the power of the resurrection to transform. The moment you let Satan plant that seed in your heart, two very horrible things can happen in your life. The first one is this. It can grow into a plant that will lead you to despise others, sometimes becoming a whole people group. And the other thing that it can do is it can grow a plant in your heart that you might begin to despise yourself and your heart would become filled with self-doubt and self-condemnation because you begin thinking if that person could be excluded maybe I could too don't let Satan have a foothold there don't let that thought find any place in your life here's what I want us to close on today is this thought how often do you who follow Jesus, how often do you thank God that you are no longer convicted or condemned? How often do you celebrate that what Jesus did on the cross got you off the hook? Romans chapter 8 tells us that there is therefore now, here and now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned. He'll never condemn you. He'll never convict you. You stand completely free. And you're free to give him thanks. And you're free to worship the one who set us free. Let's pray. Father God, we come giving you thanks this day. Thank you for this gospel account that shows us that there is no one who is too far gone 
because then that gives us all hope that we are never too far gone to receive your marvelous grace. God, we come this morning thanking you that you were greater. You were greater than the sin that would condemn us. You were greater than the sin that put that thief on the cross. You were, you were greater, God, to even overcome a deathbed conversion. You were greater, God. You do that. And so we come to worship you now. We come to worship you as we give. We come to, to worship you as we celebrate how great you are. And God, we come in this moment, maybe for someone here, praying for that kind of clarity that the thief on the cross had when they saw your glory in Jesus. They admitted their guilt that separated them from you. They trusted you completely, Jesus. They did it personally and publicly. Maybe if that's you today, maybe for the very first time, you heard the gospel from this condemned convict and God opened your eyes to the reality that you need him and right where you're at today you can just pray God I know that you're greater than my sin and I receive you today I repent I trust you now Jesus I don't trust in myself but I trust you and Jesus' words to you is that you will be with him in paradise one day Lord we come now to worship you to celebrate your goodness to give you thanks to praise your holy name. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.